Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me today on This Needs to be Said. I have an extended pleasure to have a longer conversation with Ms. Maya Washington. We had her on last month when she talked about her book, Through the Banks of the Red Cedar, My Father and the Team That Changed the Game. And there's also a PBS documentary coming out um, this month. This is the first day of Black history when we're recording this, but I wanna air it closer to the time when the documentary will be aired. So you'll hear us talk about the beginning of February, but you're gonna hear this during Black History Month. So for a couple of reasons, I had her to come back because there were more questions I didn't get to ask her. Um, it's Black History Month. She's Black, her dad's Black. I want to have them back for Black history. I'm living part of history. And it's one of the things, my personal thing is, I never thought that I would be a part of history. I thought that was always something that happened and those people were dead. But as I got older, I realized that history is happening now. And a lot of the people we've read about, they, are, they were at the time still alive. Um, some people had passed on, but every single time I get the opportunity to have a, a meaningful conversation and meaningful is, is not fictionalized. It's based on facts. It's people who lived it or had access to it. And I was talking with my husband about Miss Washington's experience and being in the house with her dad. And my dad is, a, my husband is a football guy. And um, when I started telling him, he asked me, well, what's his, her dad's stats? And I was like, uh-oh, I'm going to have to know his story and her story to share it with them. But he was like, how could she not know? And I said, well, babe, it's possible that we have history around, around us all the time and don't know it. So once she's realized that she's put it in a book, she's shared with us, this is what I've had access to throughout my life. And it's history for the rest of us because her dad's story is not just the story for their household. Her dad's story is one that goes back to civil rights movement when I'm only thinking of Malcolm X or, or Martin Luther King Jr. And, and this, you know, to no one's fault that I can say, you know, I don't know about her dad sooner, other than we hadn't written it down. So I'm gonna welcome Maya into the conversation, Maya Washington, Miss Washington, into the conversation with me because I'm grateful that she she's put her book, her, her story in a book, and it's for me to also learn from history. So welcome back to This Needs to be Said, Maya, how are you? Thank you, I'm, I'm doing great and, and I'm just so excited that we get to uh, have another conversation. And it's so needed and I, I want us to keep having the conversation. I think even having you come back for Father's Day would be awesome, but we're in Black History Month, uh, so I won't push us ahead and I don't know what your media schedule is, but I'll, I'll bug your PR people about that. So what I'm grateful for is that I would have not known about your dad's history had I not been doing a, a podcast or, or any work in media um, and my love for books. Uh, just me saying, yeah, I'll read it. Yeah, I want to. Um, you opened up my eyes and you, you gave me some more history. It's something I've desired to know that I'm living in it and history is not just the past. So thank you. Well, thank you for, for reading. I mean, it's, I think that's what compelled me to want to learn more about my dad's history. But then the more I discovered, the more I wanted to share it with others uh, mm -hmm. because um, I just feel like his story and the story of so many Black men who were pioneers in the game whose stories aren't known 
I, I just am so grateful that more people are becoming aware and then also doing kind of what you were uh, expressing, looking around themselves for history, for Black history, for uh, those milestones that maybe have occurred in your own bloodline that uh, we didn't know about. Yeah. And so one of the things that, when, I, like I said in the beginning, my intro here is my husband was like, how could she not know that her dad, you know, was in the Super Bowl and he had these stats and all. And I was like, because it, it actually happened before her, but still we just automatically think that our parents just download information into us automatically. So help me settle an argument. How did it occur that you grew up and you didn't know about your dad's um, history? Or a better question in my opinion would be, when, when did it become, when did it pique your interest? When did you find out, oh, my dad has this, this great story, this great life that I need to know about. When did that, that curiosity happen? Well, I think it, it definitely happened about 10 years ago that, that my curiosity was um, peaked enough for me to spend, you know, the past 10 years doing research and interviewing his teammates and uh, former coaches and classmates and, and things like that. But in terms of my dad, the NFL great, you know, the, the, the guy who had uh, played in Pro Bowls and a Super Bowl and um, was a number one, you know, first round draft pick um, yeah. uh, in uh, 1967 alongside his teammates, Bubba Smith, who was number one, uh, Clinton Jones, who was number two, George Webster, who was number five, and my dad was the number eight pick overall. Uh, so those were details that I really didn't know about. I was a kid who'd play Barbie dolls in his man cave den. And mm -hmm. as I'm on the floor playing with um, whatever toys, all along the walls are all of these uh, trophies and memorabilia and you know things that anytime uh, someone would have to come and, and a handyman or the organ man, or you know, uh -huh. someone would come into the house. Uh, to, to fix a plumbing issue or to, you know, do a regular uh, exterminator visit or whatever, um, they would go, you know, they would geek out when they were in, oh, when wow. they got to do any kind of work in that room. But to me, it was just sort of all I knew. And it was a whole life before I was born. So I really didn't have a full appreciation mm -hmm. for uh, how great he was as an athlete, what it would have taken for some to have achieved what he achieved uh, was really lost on me as a child. And as a young adult, I think I better understood um, his legacy, but I think I, I definitely just wanted to be my own person. You know, I didn't want to be uh, in the shadow, I suppose, of Gene Washington. And to sort of unpack that more, we grew up in an all white community for the most part very, very little diversity of, it, of any kind. And everyone knew who we were because we were one of the few black families. And uh, they knew who we were because I was Jean Washington's daughter, you know? Okay, okay. <laughs> um, and so that opportunity to just be a regular kid with other kids, even though I, I very much was, um, I had these things about me that made me stick out. And sometimes, uh, it was a great thing, obviously, um, for people to have great respect and admiration for my dad, uh, but also it wasn't always so great. 
um, because it was a double-edged sword. We still had to deal with racism. We still had to deal with uh, encounters with other kids, um, you know, who called us names uh, and, and those types of things. So it was just a very weird um, experience of being sort of highly visible, but also invisible. And our unique challenges are the things that we were going through and that my parents were facing in corporate America or had mm -hmm. faced in their childhood. Uh, we just really had to, um, I guess, suck it up a lot, you know, and just just be grateful for 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 life and um, access to education and the things that we had. So it was really in 2011 when my dad's teammate Bubba Smith passed away, and I'm starting to hear more details about how my dad got to Michigan State. Of course, I knew that my parents grew up during segregation. Of course, I knew what a remarkable um, opportunity going to Michigan State was for my dad and to be a college sport uh, athlete, multiple sports, indoor and outdoor track, as well as football. So I, I understood that, but it wasn't until Bubba Smith's memorial and the night before spending time with my dad and his teammates in Bubba's home uh, that I heard some of these more specific details that my dad was actually part of an innovative recruitment experiment that Michigan State University's head coach Duffy Doherty was using to recruit black players uh, out of the segregated South. So to, to, to basically recruit in Jim Crow's backyard and use that as a solid recruitment strategy to get the best uh, talent he could find in the South, knowing that my dad and others like him would not be welcome at Southern schools mm -hmm. uh, as students or to play um, for those institutions. So that is what really kind of lit the match for me, where it was the um, jaw-dropping realization that it was Bubba Smith's father and Bubba Smith who had a relationship with Duffy Doherty at Michigan State, who recommended my dad for a scholarship. Mm -hmm. And for them to go out of their way to recommend my dad, my dad and Bubba Smith, they were opponents. They went to um, rival schools 100 miles away. Oh, wow. So things were that dire in uh, Jim Crow, Texas that they weren't only looking out for themselves, they were also looking out for kids um, in the region so that they could also have this opportunity. And so to not be able to thank Bubba Smith personally, to not be able to say, wow, like look, look at this thing that you and your dad did for my dad and look at the yeah. impact that it's had on my life, um, I really kind of became, um, obsessed in a healthy way, I hope, uh, with um, this sort of idea of creating a love letter to Bubba Smith, to his father, to my dad and his teammates of all races um, for this thing that they did, that they, they contributed so much that uh, changed the game forever. You know, it, was, yeah. it would have been probably a primarily white sport uh, if this innovation hadn't took place at the sort of rapid pace that it took place uh, during the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. This leads me to the, the actual first question I had for you. The other one, like, I need to know, you know, how did we get started with that? So when you got to know his teammates and, and you learned about this history, you learned more about your own history. Um, 
How did how did that make you feel? Was there a sense of relief for you? Did it open your eyes? Um, did you feel like why didn't I know this sooner? Like what came up for you? I think it was you know all all of those emotions, um, but. More than anything, it's just a great sense of pride, I guess, and gratitude mm. for uh, whatever happened in my life um, or between my dad and I that we both were courageous enough mm-hmm. <laughs> to be vulnerable enough to to take the time to get to know each other. Yeah. Um, so as I took the time to learn more about his background and the things that he was passionate about and develop a better working knowledge of football. Um, uh, it opened sort of this door between us that I wouldn't say was closed, but it was just sort of like an inability to fully connect with each other. Cause I am totally an artist in every way, shape or form. I am mm-hmm. a free spirit. Um, I march to the beat of my own drum. <laughs> um, I, you know, enjoy being fit or fitness, you know, but um, mm-hmm. do not have the elite athlete athleticism that my dad has. You know, I was mm-hmm. pretty, um, pretty good dancer as a teenager and involved in different com- competitive dance teams and, you know, went on to do choreography and, and things like that. But I was not the elite athlete that he was. I was not a person who enjoyed pushing themselves okay, <laughs> to the okay. to the ultimate, you know, I I, I was someone who in, enjoys physical movement, but um, it has to be fun, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't I can't do three thousand reps uh, of anything just because I, they need to be done. No, because they need to be done. You know, so like my philosophy and an approach, you know, in 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 many ways is so different from his, and so for me to take on first a film and then a book project and for him to kind of witness the grit and determination that it took for me uh, as a black woman to to pull all of this off but for me to grow an appreciation of him I'm I'm just so grateful that uh, I persevered you know when it was tough um, out in the landscape you know of the entertainment industry but also just in those those probing questions, because I think I can't speak for, you know, all black families in America and would never try, but the things that our elders endured and the ways that they had to kind of stuff um, a number of things that just weren't right, you know, that they kind of had to push through and push past. Mm -hmm. Um, And it kind of creates a a thick skin that I feel like I learned a lot from that's kind of informed um, my sense of um, injury, <laughs> mm. you know, in the world to recognize, well, it's it's not quite as bad as what my parents had to deal with or my grandparents. Mm. Yes, we have, you know, challenges ahead of us, but it's, it's not quite as bad as it was. And I think for all of us interested in learning more about our own family's history, we have to push past what seems like a pretty thick skin. And we have to be a safe place for our elders to be vulnerable, you know, to talk about, you know, what, what was it like in the town where you grew up? You know, when did you know you could be treated differently because of the color of your skin? Yeah. Um, what did you say to yourself to uh, push forward when others said you weren't good enough or that you weren't acceptable or that you weren't 
valid as a human being, you know, um, mm-hmm. there's just so much richness there. And um, I'm profoundly humbled that both my dad and I were kind of brave enough to sit with each other in that kind of vulnerability, you know, um, is, is pretty cool. Now you said something, you said to be able to break through the thick skin. And I'm asking because I'm currently, well, I've been working on our family tree forever and we hit a a road, hit a block. And I'm like, well, I know the people that I grew up around. So they're not far for me to get to. We all live fairly close to each other, maybe a county over. However, whenever we get together, I, I don't hear, and maybe I'm looking for some fantastic story that isn't there, but it's like, okay, well, if this person's your dad, then who was his mom and his dad? And it, it just seems like things we just can't answer. And you said to make it a safe space. And I'm going, well, they they picked me to do this job, but then I don't see them helping me get it done. So I don't know if we don't know the answers or am I not asking, obviously I'm not asking the right question to get answers because I don't have any answers, but how do we know what what's making the, the skin thick? What's making them not speak because I would not know to ask the questions that you just asked. I don't know that my, I know because of history saying that black people were treated differently, but not because I heard it from my family. Does that make sense? I feel like I rambled. Well, I'm sorry if I did. No, you didn't. And I think it's, I think that's very common because, you know, what? I think we also kind of have to be prepared for the narrative not falling into what we expect, you mm-hmm. know, because if if our parents and our grandparents and our aunts and uncles or elders in the community did not tell us what it was like day to day, you know, to live in Jim Crow, how it felt to get on a bus mm-hmm. and know that every day you have to sit in the back if you're allowed to get on the bus at all. You know, um, mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times you know, you're out and about and, and especially during the pandemic, I I stay in trust. I don't, I don't go out and, you know, in the streets too much, but you know, when I felt more comfortable venturing out, um, nobody's allowing you to use their public restrooms right now. So if you, if you run to a little coffee shop or you go for a walk and you're like, Ooh, you know, I drank too much water. I need to, you know, run into this little store. And, and they are not letting you in. And it's like in those moments that I recognized how degrading and humiliating that was to know mm. that there would be a perfectly good bathroom that you just were not Allowed given access to, to yeah. you know? Um, yeah. and, and so I think it's figuring out how to ask those questions in a way um, that sort of helps them um, it just is like opening a door, a little, a little crack, you know, you just got to kind of get it open because our point of view and our perspective on uh, race and on um, discrimination, you know, are through the lens that we lived, mm-hmm. you know, and for them, it was such a embedded part of life that the risk of being vulnerable in any way, shape or form um, was life or death, you know, if, mm-hmm. if you, um, you know, uh, a lot of, I think for the women, there, are, there's all kinds of uh, shame or burden, you know, yeah. that that's put on women, the things that they go through, the, the secrets they feel they have to hold, or a, an understanding that they, 
they're not even holding secrets because they don't know the difference between, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like it all blends into each other. So it's not, it, yeah. you know, it's not that maybe anybody's holding any deep secret, but everything was so private. Everything, you know, you didn't talk about it because if you did fall apart or lose your mind, you know, that's, that's it for you, you know, um, because something was too painful or too uncomfortable or if you challenged or thought differently about the circumstances that you were um, born into, I think the stakes can be uh, a lot higher than we realize. And I think one of the revelations that I had about challenging what I knew and uh, understood from the lens of life that I lived was my dad and his teammates, a lot of them, when uh, they would do interviews, when the film came out or just in panel discussions, you know, the audience, the younger audience um, of all ethnicities would, would say, you know, what was it like when you got to Michigan State? Were you accepted, you know? And mm -hmm. all of the black players are like, oh yeah, yeah, it was great. We were a team, you know, <laughs> and you're just right, like, right, right. and it's yeah. like, I can remember every nasty word somebody called me, you know, yeah. every, every, you know, a teenage white boy who, you know, spit on my head or did this or that, or teacher mm -hmm. who looked at me a certain way, you know, like mm -hmm. I have a very clear memory you know, of all right. of the things that it, I endured. Um, but when I better understood where they were coming from, from their perspective, if you can't use a public restroom, you can't go into the front door of a store to get supplies for your family. You can't even get a job in order to afford those supplies. You know, um, the stories of uh, black men and women, you know, being kidnapped and uh, beaten and um, lynched or um, harmed, you know, without any recourse from their perspective to just get to go get an education, to have a place to sleep, to have meals yeah. and your responsibility is to perform as an athlete and as a, a student athlete as well in the classroom so that you don't get sent back to those conditions is that you can create a better life for yourself. You have somebody calling you a name isn't, you know, that's not going to keep you from the success that you are, you know, um, dead yeah. set on achieving. If you could see me, I'm just like, yeah, it's kind of like a shoulder shrug at that point. And I can mm -hmm. see the perspective of, yeah, we were good because I, I think that also between um, just in our culture, men and women sum things up differently. Something that you and I, because I, I remember, you know, being mistreated too. So I think, how could you say, you know, you were, you, you it was good because I've seen other movies and I've seen, you know, how the white athletes treated the black athletes on the same team. You mean it wasn't like that? So my mind would go there, but just your other, you know, explanation of this is where they came from. This is what it is. So a name in this lower state, that means mentality and everything else. I'm probably at a lower state, but I've been elevated. And yeah, I still don't like you, you know, talking to me. Um, or saying a, a word to me or calling me out of my name that is going to hurt me, but it's not going to hurt as much here because I'm going somewhere. So that mm -hmm. does put it into perspective, but my mind, I was sitting here waiting for you to tell me, yeah, how did they make that good? <laughs> because yeah. this is what's going through you my know, mind. And, it, and, you know, um, 
the community that they were in, um, the Lansing, uh, so Michigan State University is in East Lansing. Lansing at the time was um, still very segregated. Mm -hmm. um, there were challenges at the university that are, you know, part of oral history there that um, the one detail that does make most of, I feel like nearly all of what they're saying, I think is true uh, in terms of how they were received by their fellow students and the, and the community there. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but it's, you know, um, colored by the fact that they were amazing athletes Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, um, everybody thought they were, you know, the coolest thing on earth, you know, <laughs> like, like they got that sort of, you know, yeah. that helped. But the president of the university, John A. Hanna, was the chairperson for the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights at the time. So his uh, job, in addition to working as the president of Michigan State University, was to work on behalf of the United States to investigate civil rights issues, violations, and uh, fact find in order to build uh, the legislations that ultimately changed things in 1964 and 1965. So uh, there's oral histories that say there was a black student or a number of maybe black students who couldn't get their hair cut at the, at the white barber on campus. Uh -huh. And so there's um, folklore that John A. Hanna, the president of Michigan State University, walked down to that barber with one of the black students and made sure that the, the student's hair was cut. Um, their dorms had previously been segregated and he integrated the dorms. Uh -huh. So all of those uh, symptoms of, of racism, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, um, the symptoms of discrimination were all around them. But their ability to sort of focus on on the on the goal uh, was was greater than um, what they had to the go slights that they they felt. And so I think it's important for us, you know, as we start to really think about well, what is the legacy that we're leaving behind, yeah. and how and how will we talk to younger generations about what what racism looked like you know, in the time that we've been on the planet, what it looked like when our parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, because I think sometimes we can rely, unfortunately, too heavily on media and movies yeah. that Hollywood creates, you yeah. know, that, that are gonna package this in a certain way, you know, um, that even I think as Black people, we can be um, susceptible to accepting um, assumptions about yeah. how a story is gonna play out when I think we're all, especially in a time like Black History Month, I think we're all more nuanced, more complex, way more interesting than um, we've been portrayed. <laughs> and, I have to and, say. And, and our access yeah. to our history um, has been colored by, by that. So it may just, you know, asking those questions like, you know, when were you the happiest as a kid? What was like, you yeah. know, what was your favorite toy or your favorite thing to do? Uh -huh. um, you know, when did you, okay. you know, when did you feel like maybe you could love somebody or you had a crush on somebody and why and who were they? And so when you can inspire someone to hone in on like a specific story about getting their first bicycle, 
And then you get all this other information, like, well, maybe it was hard to get that bicycle okay, <laughs> because gotcha. there was this thing that was happening or there mm -hmm. was this water shortage going on and to get the bike, somebody, you know, like to really uh, yeah. get the full story. Sometimes it's not always, um, it, it, to get those stories, it's not always what we think. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And though what, what you just said, they sound very small, but I can see how just in that short example of the story about getting the bike that, you know, what was it like to get your first bike? And maybe the story is I didn't get a first bike and here, you know, I didn't get a bike. Here's why, but still mm -hmm. a story. So cracking that door open. Maya, thank you so much for that. I want to ask you one more question before our time wraps up again, because we're talking about Black history, we're talking about desegregation and what you've written. You also discussed the history of the desegregation of the college football team and Duffy Doherty's important role in it. So again, you are opening my eyes to it. So I don't know about Duffy and I wanna know why don't I know about Duffy um, if he was so important to this role. And I, in reading your book now, I feel like you know everybody should know everything. So that's what I'm expressing in this space. Why didn't I know about him? Why? Isn't he better well known? I think it's a, a combination of things. I, I want to truly believe because he had such an impact on my dad's life, as well as um, John Hanna, the president at Michigan State University and Biggie Munn, their athletic director. Um, I, I want to believe it's because they really were just doing what they believed to be the right thing at the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And so recognizing like, yes, this is, this is a great opportunity for us to um, change the face of college football, but ultimately it didn't hurt that these practices led to them being back-to-back -back national champions, mm -hmm. you know, so it was an effective strategy. <laughs> a byproduct of that strategy was it, it changed perceptions. It helped uh, America, especially because college football was becoming televised at that time. So people okay. were tuning in and watching them on TV. Uh, it had a huge impact when you start to see that many Black players on the field and see them uh, finishing in, um, you know, the top teams, if not the number one teams in, in the country. Mm -hmm. um, so I think at the time, you know, they were doing what they needed to do to win football games, um, mm -hmm. to advance their own values and, and personal beliefs about inclusion. Uh, for my dad and his teammates, they were just focused on, on getting that education and doing what they had to do to contribute to the teams. My dad contributing to track and field and football. Um, and so that's where their focus and their mindset was. And shortly after Duffy Doherty's success in 65 and 66, the rest of the country started to follow suit and recruit black players as well. And mm -hmm. so now if you're a player in the South, you don't have to go North. You can finally stay in your home state, stay close to your family, stay close mm -hmm. to what you know um, and have access to opportunities. Uh, we didn't have social media and um, this sort of 24 hour news cycle that we have now. Yeah. So I think it was just lost on people and it took a perspective of over 50 years 
to really like stop and say, wait a minute, like yeah. this is pretty significant. There have been a few historians, and I and I thank God for them, you know, who were looking around at this and, and noticing, like, wait, there's something here. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure who the sports journalist is that decided to call it the Underground Railroad of college football. Um, uh, but for me, you know, as a black person, it's hard to compare what my dad went through with, you know, um, Harriet Tubman, it's not quite the same escaping slavery, but the, um, idea of this pipeline and this sort of being an opportunity was something that a a few in the sports world were talking about or were aware of, but it really took all of this time and this distance. And even when I started uh, developing both the the film project, which later led to the book about 10 years ago, our country wasn't even comfortable talking about race. You know, we had Mm -hmm. a a black president. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But people weren't having the conversations they're having in the workplace, in the, you know, in the classroom, the word anti-racism was not a, you know, was not a mainstream word. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, it, it's taken our culture to shift um, yeah, no. to, to be ready to really think about and unpack these things that people take for granted. The, the ideas of um, professional athletes who are black mm-hmm. and, and what that history is, you know, what it's been for the past 50 years uh, and and more, and how far uh, sports and entertainment have progressed, so that people are suddenly able to have these conversations that they just weren't really having in the late '60s or, or early '70s in the way that we're attempting to have them now. It, it is hard. It is hard to face that something in my life could have ever caused someone else some some hardship and hardship is putting it lightly um Mm -hmm. it's it's hard so to imagine a society having to look at itself and to say hey there's something that we all could do better our community even if your book doesn't become a not you Maya but I'm talking to the audience if your book doesn't become a bestseller still write it even Mm -hmm. if it's not perfect still write it because we are the griots of the families. And when we pass away, what are we leaving behind? And mm-hmm. it's not just for my family, just not for Maya's family that she wrote this book. This book puts into perspective because you also touched on a very um, tough thing. While the school made so much progress with desegregation, just a few years ago, it received some stains from the gymnastics department. Mm-hmm. And I don't wanna go into that too much but if people want to know about it, they can look up Michigan State. But it's one of those tough things. We've come so far and still there, there's more work to be done. So yes, 100%, 100%. And I'm, I'm glad you referenced that because it is so painful, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think you hit the nail on the head that we have to have the maturity to hold uncomfortable truths. Yeah. We don't, we don't want to um, be affiliated, associated with, connected to the harm of other human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if there are people who don't feel that way, well, that they may be part of 
that, you know, that's part of the problem. Oh, but right. <laughs> I, I'm an optimist and I believe the vast majority of us desire, you know, to um, treat others with kindness and respect and, mm-hmm. and for people not to suffer unjustly for any reason, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is really um, hard, you know, to look at Michigan State University and look at that history that ultimately really did change my father's life, my family's life, but to know that the same institution changed um, many people's lives and not in a good way, you know, and, and that is equally true. And that is also um, important, you know, Um, and I'm, I'm so grateful to um, those athletes who have been telling their stories um, and that I hope we recognize that that's part of, of maturity is holding uncomfortable truths and and looking at it and having respect and concern for the suffering of others um and the resilience that it takes yes uh, for people to persevere and to reclaim you know their right to exist to attend a college you know to contribute to their sport and to do that safely um you know, I, I think um, that's 100%. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever your story is, um, if you got a pen and paper, you know, write, write it, write it down, um, yes. you know, talk, make a, make a voice message, you know, record, record your family members if they're willing, you know, to talk to you, because yeah. I think that's the only way we heal. And it's the only way we um, do better you know, for future generations, it's, 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 it's what we leave behind uh, as human beings. It is so important. Maya, thank you so much. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Thank you for writing this book. We've been talking with Maya Washington, Through the Banks of the Red Cedar, my father and the team that changed the game. Tell the This Needs to Be Said audience where you would like for them to pick up a copy of your book and let us know when when to look out for the PBS special. So you can get a copy of the book on Amazon um, through the banks of the Red Cedar, my father and the team that changed the game. It's available in Kindle, audiobook, hardcover, paperback. Uh, You can start seeing the film through the banks of the Red Cedar on PBS today. Um, I know there are a few stations um, nationwide who've programmed it. I think Miami, there's a PBS in Miami that's um, uh, kind of launching out uh, for the first day of of February, but all throughout February, uh, there are dates all over the country. You can see uh, where it's, um, you know, where you can see it or what station on our website through the banks of the red cedar.com. But if you don't see it in your local PBS listings or you see it listed, but it's at a time that's not convenient for you. um, There are a few uh, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. airings. So if that is not a fit for you, um, call your station, email them, say you really want to see this film, you know, say that you want to see it, you know, midday or in the evening or, or whenever it is that that's convenient for you. Um, but yeah, it's, it's available widely to um, all PBS stations across the country right now. And also it will be available for streaming um, soon, probably in the next few weeks, we'll, we'll have a, a streaming option available. Fantastic. 
and the website one more time. So that's the last thing that they hear. Is through the banks of the red cedar.com. Fantastic. Maya, have a wonderful day and much success getting Thank the word you so out. Much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We're going to say goodbye. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to This Needs to Be Said. I hope you've gained something from what has been shared. Send me your comments and show ideas through the website at tntbsmedia.com. I'd love to hear from you.